0: Lord, we uh, again, we just thank you for uh, the way that you preserved Melanie, Lord, and that her injury wasn't worse after that terrible fall, and God, we just pray for uh, your peace and your comfort and your healing in her life this morning. God, we just pray that the the post-concussion stuff would begin to fade, Lord, and that um, she'd be able to just return to normal life and normal workload and um, that you would heal her, and Lord, we just thank you for the body of Christ, the way we love one another, care for one another, and demonstrate that we're your disciples. And God, we thank you for the the love of God that Melanie has experienced from the church this week. And God, we just uh, we pray for her and ask that you touch her in Jesus' name. And Lord, for Andy and Bronwyn, we we uh, we thank you, Lord, that you delivered. Andy's father safely into eternity into your hands. And God, I thank you that he's not sick. I thank you, Lord, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That is the hope of Christ. And uh, we thank you for that, God. And we pray that that would just be such a great uh, sense of comfort for Andy and Bronwyn as they and their family grieve. And God, may may your presence just be real to them. I thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit. He's our comforter. And may his presence just uh, fill their home, their lives, their family this week. And and God, we thank you that we can come to your word this morning, that you desire to speak to us. You can meet each one of us right at the spot where we're at. And so, Lord, uh, we come before you this morning, and we just ask for open hearts, open minds. We ask for eyes that would see the wonderful things in your word. We ask for ears, Lord, that would be tuned to the voice of your spirit. And we ask, Lord, uh, that that your Holy Spirit would just anoint this time, um, that you'd bless it, that you'd give unction and power to it. Lord, I'm reminded of these words that we've seen um, from, from Paul in 1 Corinthians that he said, I came to you not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And God, we pray as Christ is preached this morning that there would be a demonstration of the Spirit's power here. That there would be something that a man cannot manufacture, but only God can make. And that's your presence real. And so God, may you speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, you can turn there with me in your Bibles. I called this message, uh, The Increase of Decrease. The increase of decrease. Paul has been writing to uh, this church in Corinth. He's been addressing a lot of themes. This is the this is the immature church of the New Testament for sure, one hundred percent. These are the these are the guys that were all over the map, and and uh, so Paul's been addressing things as the letter's gotten started here: worldliness, carnality, immaturity in the church, um, strife division and as he's been addressing these issues amongst God's people there in Corinth one of the things that he has constantly been doing is calling them to their to their identity in Christ Jesus not kicking the dog is the statement I've been using but but um, calling them to understand who they are in the Lord because of the work of Christ and last week We were in chapter three, and Paul talked about three pictures of the church. He said it's God's garden, it's God's building, it's God's temple. And one of the things that had been so divisive in uh, the church in Corinth was their dividing over different church leaders. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Peter. And this whole scene, and there was jealousy, and there was strife, and there were factions, and there were divisions. And so, Paul is now going to start to talk about himself, about his ministry, and how this church should be viewing uh, the apostles, in particular, their leaders. And so, verse 1, it says this, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And so, two pictures Paul gives us right off the hop here. He says, we're, we are uh, servants of Christ, and we're stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, Paul here, when he calls himself a servant, referring to himself, uh, referring to Apollos and the apostles as servants, he uses a different Greek word than what he typically uses to describe a servant. Um, this word can be translated directly minister. If you've, got a, if you've got a different Bible translation than the ESV that we're using this morning, yours might even say that. A minister, But the primary definition of this servant is this. If you look it up in the Greek, it means under rower. Uh, an under rower or one who is in a, a gallery of slaves in a ship. And so, you know, picture in your mind, if you would, uh, maybe a Roman naval ship back in the day that was powered by a huge uh, gallery of servants who were below deck at the oar uh, manning an oar, uh, setting the pace being set, you know, maybe by a drummer or however it worked. And they had their hands on the oar and they were just pulling at the sea. And Paul says, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not the ship captain. I'm simply a man who is at the oar like other people. I'm a servant of the master. I'm not, I'm not at the, and in this idea of a servant, it's not, I'm not at the bottom I'm not at the most lowly position of a servant, but it's certainly not a prestigious place at all. I'm just at an oar with other men, under rowers who serve Christ, who is the pilot of the ship, the captain of the ship. A servant of Christ. He says, We're stewards of the mysteries of God, meaning uh, we're housekeepers in a sense. A housekeeper protected, or a steward of a house protected. Uh, the treasures of the house, and drew from the treasures of the house to look after the master's needs and to look after the, the way the house functioned. You know, in your mind, you might picture Joseph in the house of Potiphar, who we read about in, in Genesis. He didn't own anything. Uh, he was a slave in the master's uh, house, but he was entrusted to manage the house. He was entrusted with the treasury of Potiphar, even while Potiphar was away. He, he looked after the other servants. He saw that the bills were paid. He, he looked after the house, the food and the clothing and all the things involved with managing the house. And Paul says, we're stewards, we're like housekeepers of the mysteries of God. Now the word mysteries is one that we've been seeing throughout the, the book of 1 Corinthians here so far. It's been Paul's been mentioning it several times. It doesn't mean secret. It means open secret. It means something that was past hidden and now has been revealed. And so Paul says, we look after this open secret. We we are like a treasurer. You know, Jesus talked about that parable about the man who learned to draw out the old things and the new things from the the treasury. And Paul says, uh, we handle the mysteries of God, the open secrets of God, and we make them known. And only the Holy Spirit can take those mysteries and, and then make them known to a natural man so that he can be a spiritual man. And so the truths of God are like, in Paul's description here, are like uh, uh, treasures. And as a steward of God, Paul was learning to pull out the old and the new so that the family of God could have all of its needs met. And so he says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ, And as stewards of the mysteries of God. It says in verse 2. Moreover it is required of stewards. That they be found faithful. Primary requirement. Here's the goal of the ministry Paul says. Here's what I am working towards the standard. He says that I be a faithful minister. That's what's required. When someone entrusts something into your care. To look after Uh, You are expected to do what you've been told to do. And Paul says, God's requirement to me is faithfulness, faithfulness. You know, Jesus in the gospels are recounted many times him telling parables about stewards, about servants, and some who were faithful and some who weren't faithful. And this is a great picture for all of us. We are stewards of the mysteries of God. He's entrusted us. He's entrusted into our care the job of carrying out his work, the work of the kingdom. And we're not required to be brilliant, thank goodness. We're not required to be successful. We're required to be faithful. Success is God's department. We're just required to be faithful and to carry out the duties of servants. You know, if you look over the Old Testament and you kind of cruise the pages of the Old Testament, the most successful person that you'll find, the most successful ministry in the Old Testament is one that you might not expect. It's actually Jonah. Jonah is the most successful prophet in the Old Testament. You know, with a few words, a whole ship came to faith and repented. When he eventually went to Nineveh, uh, within a matter of days, an entire city... A hundred thousand, maybe two hundred thousand. The estimates of Nineveh are large. It was a large city. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands came uh, to the place of repentance within a number of days of him reaching that place and preaching the message of God. But the thing about Jonah when you consider him in the scripture is uh, one of the characteristics you would not consider is faithfulness, is it? Definitely not. Thrown overboard, you know, arm twisted around his back, he went to Nineveh. You know, only after being tossed into the sea and swallowed by a whale and puked up on the beach did he finally, you know, agree to be a faithful minister to the Lord. On the other hand, you have Jeremiah, who's called the weeping prophet. He's a prophet who saw essentially no success after years and years and years of ministry Uh, in the natural eye. You'd look at Jeremiah and you say that man's a failure because people didn't respond to his message. But Paul says the requirement is faithfulness. Jeremiah in the old Testament is the picture of faithfulness. Jonah is the picture of success that we would imagine, but it was hard for him to be faithful. And faithfulness is God's one requirement. Be faithful. You know, regardless, in your service to the Lord, regardless of whether anyone is noticing, whether they're watching, whether they're applauding, or whether they're not applauding, the requirement is the same, that you be faithful to the Lord. Because we don't work, or we should not be working for the applause of men. But for the applause of God. And looking to be faithful to Him. So Paul says this in verse 3. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before this time, before the Lord comes who will bring to light the things that are now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from the Lord. Remember Corinth, it's divided. Oh, is Paul so popular? I'm of the Paul fan club. Oh, Apollos is a way better preacher than Paul. I'm into Apollos. And, you know, the people were asking the wrong question. When you ask the wrong question, you get the wrong answer. The right question should have been, was Paul faithful? Was Apollos faithful? Was Peter faithful? You know, God's servants and those who serve the Lord are always being judged. The the reality is it comes with the territory. There is always someone to point out. There is always someone who's ready to criticize. And Paul says this, there's three courts basically by which we are judged, before which we appear, you know, in a sense. There's men, the court of men, the judgment of men, the court of human opinion, the court of human approval. You know, I'm going to confess something this morning. I'm an avid sports sports radio listener. Every time I get in the car, click, click, I listen to the sports radio. But as of late, you know, once the Canucks season's over, I quickly turn it off as quickly as it went on because, yeah, because <laughs> I just get so disgusted by the media and by the way they report certain things. And one of the things that's just kind of been striking me lately is I've been listening to reports on the NFL and the NHL and all of these different things is, is watching with surprise the way sports teams and leagues like the NHL or the NFL um, – just bow to the pressure of public opinion or the, the pressure of the media. And, you know, many times you listen and the, and the media ends up getting what it wants and what they're targeting because of the, just the pressure of human judgment on those franchises or on those individuals. And all too often what is politically uh, correct or expedient is the action that those teams take rather than over what is right. The court of human opinion, approval. And Paul said this, I'm not going to cave under such pressure. I love that about Paul. It, was he sensitive to the judgments of men? Yeah, I think so, because he, he wouldn't have been writing this letter if that wasn't the case. He was sensitive. But, but he said, I'm not, I'm not going to let your opinion direct Direct me all, all, all too often, you know. Uh, the judgment of men becomes the steering wheel for the church or the steering wheel for ministry. And Paul says, uh-uh. no, Uh uh, no, I believe my master's opinion of me is far more important than that, and I want that to direct my life. I want to be faithful. There's the judgment of men. And then he talks about the judgment of self. Paul said, I'm not worried about your judging of me. And in fact, I'm not even really that worried about my own judgments of myself, which is an amazing thing. And I'm not putting much stock in my personal assessment of himself, he says. And, and Paul could say this. He could say, look, I'm, I'm, a, I'm not aware of anything in my life and in my ministry that's really missing the mark. You know, if I just take some time and I do a personal inventory, I'm like, I can't see that I'm way off course anywhere. And so I'm not going to let that be an excuse, he says, because sometimes, you know, I'm not going to judge myself, but I'm also not going to trust if I do judge myself, because the reality is, is, I mean, can we trust the judgment of ourselves? You know, I always cast myself in the leading role. I don't know about you guys, but I think you always cast yourself in the leading role. Uh, And... There is a a fine line between having a clear conscience and being self-righteous. And, you know, we might ask, is the conscience a safe guide? Is my ability to assess myself even safe? Can I trust my heart? And the scripture says, we can't. Uh, You know, our conscience tells us what is right and our conscience tells us what is wrong and it it can be a, a safe guide for discerning but my conscience is certainly quick, like it's really good at assessing other people. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, when it comes to myself, though, my, my conscience is pretty quick to give its stamp of approval. When I'm soft with sin, when you're soft with sin, uh, you know, our hearts will flatter our, us, ourselves, you know. The human power to justify is something that's pretty incredible. And... It's human nature to be harsh with others, but to be lenient with yourself. You don't know, remember the prophet Nathan came to King David after he'd had this whole, you know, uh, affair with Bathsheba. He'd, he'd killed her husband. He had entered into marriage with her. And Nathan came and he confronted and he told a parable about a rich man who stole a poor man's sheep. And David was really quick to uh, condemn the rich man who store, stole the poor man's sheep, but he was, he, is, he was lenient on himself even though he had taken someone else's wife. And it's so easy for us to be like that, you know, to say other people cause division. You know, I stand up for what's right. You know, other people are contentious. I have conviction. Uh, you know, They miss church, and we say, where's their commitment? And I miss church, and I got a great reason for it, right? I mean, we know all the things. You know, what I'm saying is this, obviously. We're not very good at being honest with ourselves, making a self-assessment. And so Paul implemented a good plan in his life. He said, if I'm not aware of anything that's majorly off base here, I'm not going to even put my trust in my judgment of myself. I don't trust you to judge me, and I don't trust myself to judge me. And then he talks about, so the court of human approval, the court of self, and the judgment of God, the court of God. The only judgment that actually matters. And the reference here that he is pointing us to is the final judgment, what we call the Bema seat of Christ. It's there that the true facts about the faithfulness of God's servants will be revealed, and they will be rewarded. And we will be judged as servants of God. We will be judged as stewards of the mysteries of God. And our faithfulness in handling those ministries and making them known. Now just because we shouldn't take into account other people's judgments. And we, shouldn't, we should be cautious about our own judgments of ourselves. Doesn't mean that we should have an independence God's brought us into the family of God. Uh, the church, the church is a family. It's a place where we help one another grow. There is a place, the scripture says, for correction, uh, for, for discipline, for honesty, for speaking the truth in love. And if someone speaks the truth to us in love, and, then, and, and they are right, then they help us. If they speak the truth to us in love, and they're actually wrong, then we can help them. We're family. We work together. We help one another. And so I would say this. The, the, the issue here Paul is talking about is something I mentioned a few weeks ago. Is this. Learn to make right judgments. Learn to make right judgments. And the problem with the Corinthian church was uh, their judgments of their apostles. Uh, those who were their leaders. They were judging at the wrong time. The right times at the judgment seat, God will do it. And so you might say ultimately the Corinthian church that was judging was putting themselves in God's place on his throne, doing his work, playing God. They were judging by the wrong standard, you know, personal preferences, human definitions of success, uh, comparing one to another, when the only true basis of judgment is God's word. They were judging with wrong motives, tearing certain leaders down so that they could build up their preferred leader, promoting division in the church, and not acting uh, spiritual but carnal. And so they needed to come to the place where they examined their own hearts and, and saw some of the pride that was in there that was hurting the body of Christ. Remember, Paul said this, this is how you should regard us. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. The question they should have asked themselves was this. Was Paul faithful in the preaching and the practice of the word of God? Was Apollos faithful in the preaching and the practice of the word of God? Was Peter faithful in the practice and the preaching and the word of God? Then, awesome. God be blessed in his church. And so Paul says this, verse 6. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. So Paul says, look, here's a great example, you know, in a sense, myself and Apollos, we should illustrate this to you. You should see this in us as I apply this, and you should learn don't go beyond what is written. You know, too often, human beings and believers, listen to this church, believers uh, use standards that are beyond the word of God to judge other people. And we must learn to make right judgment, biblical judgment. You know, it's, it's so easy to, let's put it in the context of church leadership that Paul's talking about here. It's easy to judge church leaders on cool factor Entertainment, Um, good looks, which I'm glad you're not doing, marketing skills, or, you know, things that are beyond what is biblical. And when you use unbiblical standards to judge, the result is, is that you begin to like or dislike someone on the basis of, well, unbiblical standards. And if the Corinthians were using the word of God as the standard, they would have said, thank you, God, for Paul, and thank you for Apollos, and thank you for Peter. Thank you for these men who are servants serving your church. You know, one, of the, one of the themes of Corinthians has been this, I would say, is, is human boasting and learning to leave human boasting behind and just to boast in the Lord. Look what Paul says in verse 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? See, people in the church at Corinth were bragging and they were boasting that they were better than others. And Paul says, if you looked in the mirror lately, what, what makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive from God? If you did receive it, why do you boast like it was something you earned? See, everything we have is given to us by God, right? Our talents, our abilities, our knowledge, our gifts, our possessions, all is from God. And so it's foolish to take the view that we are better than someone else because of all these things that God has given us. Because of how we view our talents or our abilities or our knowledge or our gifts or our possessions is better than theirs. All that we have has been given to us um, by the one who tells us, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. Do not think of yourself more highly than others. And Paul, so Paul says this, verse 8, already you have all you want. Already you have become, Paul begins to use some, um, some sanctified, uh, I want to say he was Italian, but he's not, Trish. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Some sanctified sarcasm here, okay? So you got to hear him. He's tongue in cheek, okay? Listen to him. You already, you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. I think his hands were in the air like this as he said that. Uh, and that you would reign so that, you might, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. Like men sentenced to, be de- sentenced to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still, listen to this, like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. What a description Paul gives. Remember, he says, you know, what makes you different from anyone else? Warren Wiersbe tells a story. He said this, uh, a friend of mine was speaking at a pastor's conference, and a young pastor came up to him and asked for prayer, and he said, would you pray for me that I would stay humble? And the man who was going to pray for him just said, "Uh, tell me, what is it that you have that you need to be proud about? See, John the Baptist said this. He said, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. And then John said this, and I must decrease and he must increase. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. And so Paul is using some sarcasm here. Oh, you've become kings. Oh, you're rich. And he says again in verse 9, I think that God has exhibited us, us apostles, as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. A, a spectacle. Interesting word. In the Greek, it's the word theatron. I don't know if I'm saying it right. Someone can correct me later. A theater, a place where drama takes place, a a place where games and dramatic you know, spectacles happen and public assemblies are held like, uh, you know, like the forum. And Paul, in a sense, is, you know, you know, giving his we who are about to die salute you. He's he's using a, a, a picture that fit in their culture and was very familiar in the Roman Empire where the government provided entertainment for citizens in the theater and in. in in the forums of the different cities. And, and in those cities, you know, citizens would come and they were eager to see competition, to see games, um, to see men compete physically against one another. But we know not in that culture, not only were they hungry for games, but they were thirsty for blood. Um, And when the games were finished, they would bring the poorest of prisoners in and they'd let the wild beasts out and the crowd would cheer as men and women, young and old, were devoured by animals. And the crowd didn't expect much in the battle. They were just thirsty for blood. And and Paul, in a sense, gives that picture of himself. He considered himself like the last man on the program who was going to be sent in before the wild animals, so to speak. And so I guess the question is, where does that leave us? Well, his point is this. In the kingdom of God, in serving Jesus Christ, in doing the work of the ministry in the church, there is no place for human pride. All glory should be given to God. You know, as he said time and time again throughout this letter, let him who boasts, boast where? In the Lord. Paul says, we're fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. So, you know, you think about Paul and Paul's life. There was a time when he gloried in his strength. He, he took pride in his accomplishments and his education and who he was, his birthline and his this and his that, and he bragged about it. But when he met Jesus Christ, he discovered that all of the things that he so had believed were strength in his his life were actually liabilities. And it was as he suffered and as he met Jesus that he discovered that true spiritual strength is the result of weakness. When I am weak, then I am strong. See, strength that knows itself to be strength will become weakness. And weakness that knows itself to be weakness will become strength. Remember, John the Baptist said, I must decrease and he must increase. And the Corinthians, well, that church, they wanted glory. They wanted the glory that comes from men. Uh, rather than the glory that comes from God. And, and the church was almost in a sense trying to borrow glory by who they associated themselves with. Oh, we're of, we're of this group, we're of that group. And, and they tried to borrow glory by associating themselves with certain church leaders. And, and Paul was saying, if you want to associate with us, if you want to associate with the name Paul, if you want to associate with the name Apollos, if you want to associate the name with the name Peter, then, like us, you better get ready to suffer. Because us apostles are not held in honor but in disrepute. We're considered the scum of the world. Look at his description. He says again we hunger, we're thirst, we're poorly dressed, buffeted, and homeless. We labor, we work with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. Uh, We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Now, there's a a resume. How would you hire that guy to be your, your pastor? Okay? Inspiration for ministry. Paul, scum of the world. Refuse of all things. But he was describing the way that people treated him and even the way that he responded. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. In all things, he sought to respond in love. And what was the result? He was called the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. In the book of Acts, chapter 22, the crowds chanted, Rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. Really? For preaching the gospel? He's not fit to live. And Paul and the other apostles were treated like uh, Christ was treated. I've been been thinking on this thing lately, um, and it's this fascination that we as believers have with power encounters, the miraculous, you know, the thirst that we have to um, experience those things in the kingdom of God. And many Christians, you know, they look for and they hunger for supernatural signs. And they, they want to move in power, you know, as Gail Irwin says. And, you know, if you think about it, in all the history of the world, in all of the history of the world, where was God most glorified? And God was never more glorified than at the cross of Christ Jesus. When Jesus died for the sins of the world, God was glorified in the suffering and the cross and the death of his son, Jesus Christ. Remember that Paul said at the beginning of this chapter, it's required of a steward that he be found faithful. That's the requirement. That is the definition of success. That there is no greater sign of success in ministry than faithfulness. And the greatest demonstration of faithfulness in the history of the world is when Jesus Christ went to the cross for my sin and for your sin. That is the greatest greatest demonstration of faithfulness in the history of the world. Why? Because the Bible tells us on the night that he was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane with, with great anguish, with loud cries and and appeals with prayers and and petition and with a face full of sorrow and with drops of blood that came from him that were uh, like sweat, Jesus prayed and said, My Father, if it is possible, uh, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will. I will be faithful to your will, he was saying. And God willed. God willed. And God glorified himself through the faithful work of Jesus Christ on the cross. You know, some love the glory, but they don't love the cross. Some love glory, but they don't love the cross. Paul said in verse 14, I love this verse. It's the heart of a a father. He says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. I I love that verse because Paul's game was not manipulation. Uh, He wasn't skillfully trying to control this church by shaming them, rubbing their face in it. In his anger, he wasn't trying to embarrass them. He wasn't trying to humiliate them. His words were meant to admonish them, he says. That that word means to warn them, to teach them. It's it's a warning, a teaching. You know, I remember uh, a number of years back, my sister was here visiting, and we had all the kids, you know, her her three or four kids, I don't know know—I remember how many she had at the time, and my three kids, and we all went to Mike's for gelato. It was this time of year. It was awesome. Everybody had their ice cream cones. And we were leaving Mike's, and we were, um, you know, goofing off as we came out of the store, and we were goofing off with Simon. And all of a sudden, remember Simon, he's busted his elbow. I got to talk to him last night on uh, FaceTime. He's doing really well. Showed me his green cast. And uh, going back to Singapore uh, for follow-up in a few weeks. Uh, doing well. Um, we, were, we were goofing off as we came out of Mike's, and as we were, Simon started to run away, and like a young kid, he turned and he bolted between two cars parked on Gower Point here and right into the street. I mean, just not even a look, not even a glance, not even a lift up his head, just a full-on sprint, and he scared the you know what, out of all of us. And you know, I was, as I was recalling, I was thinking, man, if it was Georgia Street or something like that in Vancouver, the kid would have been dead. And I'll tell you, his mother gave him some admonishment. <laughs> he had to sit on that bench out there and then on the concrete, and we must have hung out there for a half an hour, but not Simon. He didn't move. He he didn't move. It was a strong warning because he could have been run over because that's what a mom does because she loves her child. She admonishes the child. And and Paul is saying here to the church, look what he says. You are my beloved children. What a great picture. I don't want to shame you. I want to admonish you. Truth spoken in love. Maybe with a hint of sarcasm, but there's nothing wrong with a hint of sarcasm. I'm gonna speak the truth to you in love. Look at verse 15. For he says, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And I urge you then be imitators of me. Hey, Mother's Day. Aren't you you thankful for your mom today? I'm thankful for my mom. She did a great job yesterday sharing her story. I'm thankful for my wife. She's a great mom to my kids. Thankful for moms, all of you this morning. Moms are so important in your faith walk with Jesus Christ. And Paul says, in your faith walk with Christ, you have, you have many guides, you have many teachers, you have many people who influence this. But in a spiritual sense, you only have one parent. Paul had fathered the church, so to speak, in Corinth as their spiritual parent. He had this unique place, of course, as an apostle with of influence and authority. And we're not all apostles like Paul, but I mean, you can certainly recognize this. The person who led you to Jesus Christ has a very special place in your life, don't they? They're like a spiritual parent. And as a spiritual parent, uh, as a father, Paul could say this to his children in faith. I urge you then imitate me, which is, it seems so crazy. I mean, you know, we don't, it it almost sounds arrogant, right? And if you take it out of context, it it would. I urge you, be imitators of me. If you take that out of context, it sounds really arrogant. But as Paul was saying this, a father speaking to his beloved children, it was not a profession of self-dependence or or self-confidence. It was a profession of Jesus' dependency in his life. Paul's not saying, I've arrived, you should follow me. He was not boasting in himself. He recognized all of the things that he was telling us in this chapter. He recognized that every bit of good that was in his life came from his father who was in heaven. He he recognized that he should not think more highly of himself than he ought. He, He learned to love the glory of the cross. When reviled, he blessed. When persecuted, he endured. When slandered, he entreated. He took his place at the oar on the ship of the kingdom of God. And he just faithfully went to the beat of the Lord. He served his master as a steward, knowing that the treasure didn't belong to him, but to the master. And he was to look after the house. He learned to make right judgments. He learned don't go beyond what is written. He was faithful. And his words, follow me as I follow Christ, were not a declaration of self-assurance. They were not a declaration of self-reliance. They were an absolute, complete admission of Jesus' dependency in his life. He said, I can tell you and urge you to follow me because I'm following Christ. I don't know about you, but I, in my life, desire to follow people like that, don't you? Like, I could get behind that ship. I can get in, in that train. I want to imitate men and women who are examples of Jesus' dependency. So in verse 17, he says, that's why I sent Timothy, my beloved and faithful child, in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Verse 18. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out, not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? You know, pride is a terrible thing in a Christian's life and in a church. My kids, we we got into something over the winter. We got into uh, Mountain Man, watching Mountain Man on Netflix. That became our show we like to watch. And in one of the last episodes that we watched... Old Tom there, he's nearly 80, goes to visit his brother. Any Mountain Man fans out there? He goes to visit his brother, and they're going to break a horse. These two guys, man, they're like 80. They're going to break the horse. And I'm thinking, great, this is the episode where Tom dies and his brother gets trampled. <laughs> and, you know, a colt or a horse, until it is broken, is dangerous and useless and, and a threat to the one who is trying to tame it. But when it, when it is broken, like it was in that episode, it becomes something useful. And, and, and something gentle. And, and Paul, in a sense here, is trying to break pride in the church. He had been patient with their disobedience. You know, just like a f- faithful parent is, is patient with their children's disobedience. But then there comes a time when there needs to be discipline, right? And Paul says, I'm prepared to back up my talk with power as he speaks to this church. You know, I'm thinking about Mother's Day and and my mom backing up her talk with power in my life. When I was little, she had this line that I I heard a number of times, wait till your father gets home. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we, we... We had things in our house that uh, implements and implement that I was familiar with. It's not, you know, kosher these days anymore. But there was power that backed up the talk and would discipline if was necessary. And the immature Christians in Corinth were big talkers like kids tend to do. And Paul says, you better back up your talk with the walk. Dad's coming home, so to speak. And he would back up his talk with power. And so as he, as he admonishes the church, he says, look, I don't want to do that. Do you want me to come with the rod of discipline or do you want me to come as a, a gentle father? And there's this sense that those who won't govern themselves will be governed, <laughs> speaking of this church. And so, you know, as we think about this church and its immaturity and the division and the strife, You know, Paul is facing a real tough challenge as the leader of the Corinthian church, confronting sin without being too harsh. You know, trying to get people that have way too high of an opinion of themselves to conform to the gospel. Uh, Tough work that only could be done with, well, by the power of the Holy Spirit and with the teaching of the word of God. And I would say this, that's how ministry is. For all of us. And as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God, what are we called to? What is God requiring of us in the midst of all that? Well, it's this. You and I must be faithful. We must be faithful to the master. And the beauty is this. And why faithfulness is something that we can stick to. Because we know that in the end, God will glorify himself. He will not share his glory. He will not let his glory fall to the ground. God will glorify himself. Of that we can be sure. And because God will glorify himself, we can be faithful. And so in our lives... May there be an increase of decrease. Less of me, more of him. Less of us, more of Jesus. Let's pray this morning. Trish and Brian, you guys can come on up here. Would you guys stand with me? And let's pray as they come.